You're listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. I've discovered something recently. You may already know it. The stars are disappearing. Over the past months, I've immersed myself in research about the value of the night sky, the risks of losing natural darkness, and the ever-expanding problem of light pollution. And I need to curb my impulse to tell you everything I've learned. There's just so much. Because once your eyes open to the vanishing dark, you see it everywhere. We're going to meet a man who has spent the last several years researching and writing about light pollution in an effort to save natural darkness. And then we'll go to a tiny neighborhood that's struggling to hold on to the night. Here's Paul Bogard. I'm Paul Bogard. I'm the author of The End of Night. The full title is The End of Night, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light. It's an attempt to explore the value of darkness and the many costs of light pollution. The dark is half our life. We evolved like all life on Earth with bright days, but we also need darkness. We evolved with dark nights as well. And we're living in a world, certainly in the Western world and in any major city all over the world where we're losing darkness or we don't even have darkness. And it's happened rapidly in the last several decades, but just slow enough that it's hard to notice. Um, So I think that people just aren't even aware how dark it used to be, how important darkness is for us and what we've lost. Paul discovered that the darkness was disappearing when he went looking for the stars. I've always loved nighttime from the time I was a little kid. And it wasn't until after college I started to learn the constellations. I had always wanted to learn the night sky, to know the night sky, but I hadn't sort of gotten around to it. And when I did, uh, or when any of us begin to learn the constellations, you very quickly learn how much we can't see anymore. Mostly that's because we've lost the constellations to this thing called light pollution. This thing called light pollution is serious. Human beings have looked up into the stars since the dawn of civilization. Gazing into the dark night sky gives humans a sense of perspective and place in the universe and inspires feelings of awe, connection, and curiosity. When we look into the stars, we see the origin of our own existence. What happens when we basically delete a core aspect of human experience that's been around since the beginning for everyone? Eight of 10 kids born in the US today will never live where they can see the Milky Way. And I think a lot of those kids will never see the Milky Way, which is astounding. That used to be a common sight, everybody knew it. And now almost no one knows it. That really moves people, the the idea that our children are growing up without this experience of, of darkness. I often hear stories from people about their amazing, wonderful experiences of the night sky. They almost always are people who are in their uh, 60s, 70s, or 80s. Almost never do I hear stories from teenagers or even people in their 20s. We are losing or have lost this experience. And I think it's like anything, you know, if 
if as a child you're not exposed to something and, and helped to value it, why when you get older would you then value it? I mean, there may be rare exceptions to that rule, but by and large, if you've never seen the Milky Way, why would you care about seeing the Milky Way? You just don't know what you're missing. Here's one of the ways to determine how much you're missing. It's a way of measuring how dark or not dark the sky is. There's a scale that I talk a lot about, which is called the Bortle scale, which was created by this astronomer named John Bortle. It starts with nine and it goes down to one, nine being our brightest places, our cities, and one being natural darkness, no evidence of artificial light. Most Americans live in levels five and above, uh, so we're not even in the second half of the scale. People are impressed by that, and sometimes they say, well, where can I go to experience a level one darkness? Those are really hard to find. Think about that. It's almost impossible to find a place where you can look up and see all the stars. The incandescent electric lamp was invented a little over 100 years ago, and today, two-thirds of Americans and Europeans can no longer experience a real dark night. There are huge consequences of our environment being bathed in artificial light. The effects on wildlife include disrupting birds' migration patterns, sea turtles' nesting behaviors, and hunting among many mammals who are active at dawn, dusk, and night. There's also growing evidence that too much artificial light has negative impacts on human health, causing sleep disorders, diabetes, and some types of cancer. So how is this happening? What's really causing the disappearance of the dark night sky? There's just so much light, and light is really cheap. There's been a recent estimate by the International Dark Sky Association that worldwide every year we waste about $100 billion on outdoor light, which is obviously a huge number, and, and it's hard to defend it. We use a lot more light than we, than we actually need. Parking lots and gas stations are lit 10 times as brightly as they were 20 years ago. 20 years is not that long, you know. Most of us can, can still think back 20 years and 10 times as bright, you know, not twice as bright, which would be bright, but 10 times as bright. It's, it's ridiculous, it's crazy. You know, when I tell that to people, most people think, wow, that doesn't make any sense, that's crazy. And yet it continues to get brighter every year. It's estimated that at least a third of all outdoor lighting is wasted, much of it going directly up into the sky. But let's not forget about indoor lighting. And I have plenty of photographs of a building that nobody is in completely lit up at night, spraying its light into the surrounding woods or countryside, and it's destroying the habitat of any nocturnal creature that's out there. It just doesn't make any sense except for our lack of awareness, our fear, and it doesn't need to be that way. The problem of overlit gas stations, parking lots, and billboards seems fairly obvious once you become aware of it. And the answer is to turn down or even turn off the lights. But street lights and security lights are another source of light pollution, and one in which the solutions require a more nuanced approach. Which brings us to the tiny, charming neighborhood of Point Richmond, California, a place where good intentions and lack of awareness combine to further erode the dark night. My name's Hillary Brown. I live in Point Richmond, uh, which is a city in the East Bay in California. Point Richmond is actually part of the larger city of Richmond, which has a population of around 110,000. 
In 2004, Richmond was named one of the most dangerous cities in America, though it's in much better shape in recent years. Point Richmond is like a quaint little hamlet right on the San Francisco Bay, and it has a population of around 3,000. It's actually separated from the rest of Richmond by a freeway. It sometimes is called the Hidden City. It's really cute. It's a little small town in the middle of the Bay Area. Not too long ago, Hillary and some of her neighbors started noticing something strange. The lights in this historic neighborhood started getting a lot brighter and multiplying. So they banded together into a group. The Richmond Smart Lighting Coalition. (laughs) There's only five of us. But there are a lot of people that have sent us emails saying they support what we do and they've offered to help us. And so we maybe have 40 or 50 people that are, you know, backing us up. Hillary became aware of the new lights kind of gradually. Well, actually, I didn't notice it at first. So the city, they changed the old lights to new LEDs, and I noticed that the color had changed. But my boyfriend, we'd drive around town, and every time we came home, he'd say, wow, these lights are so glary, they're awful. Can't you notice it? And I was like, well, you know, I guess, now that you mention it, they're kind of glary. And so then after he pointed it out, whenever I'd drive into town, I'd think, yeah, they kind of burn my eyes a little bit. And if you look at these lights and then you look somewhere else, I'll see like a little black hole where where I used to be looking at the light. And so we would kind of kvetch to each other like, well, you know, the city seems like they should have bought different lights or, you know, I wonder why they put these lights in and they didn't tell anybody about it. So we complained to each other. And then there's a neighborhood website where people will post things. And somebody else in the neighborhood, uh, his name's Jordan, he posted on the neighborhood website that he really didn't like these new lights and that they were really changing the charm of our city and really changing the way things looked. And he thought they were too bright and too glary and too blue. And he wanted to know if anybody else felt the same way. Well, a bunch of other people responded and said they felt the same way. They didn't like the lights and they thought they were awful. So people in the neighborhood started talking about the lights, and then we all started doing a little bit of research about how did we end up with these particular lights, and are there different lights we could have gotten, and why why is it necessary to get lights? So what the city did is they installed new light fixtures everywhere, literally on every single light pole that didn't already have a fixture. So the old light fixtures were high-pressure sodium. They're the kind of orange colored, they kind of look like orange sherbet to me a little bit. So those lights already were energized. There was electricity going to them. So when they put the new fixtures on the old lights, they were immediately illuminated. But in addition to that, on the new poles, they put new lights. And the old high pressure sodium lights, they're such an unnatural orange color that our eyes aren't that sensitive to them. But the new lights, they're so much closer in color to moonlight, so our eyes have evolved to be sensitive to them. So even though it might be the same amount of light that's leaving the fixture, it seems to us, to our human eyes, that it's much, much brighter. You might be thinking, how much brighter could it really be? (laughs) To me, it feels like a parking lot. Um, But other people said they felt like they were at the Oakland airport. Somebody said it felt like the Gulag. Somebody else said it was like Disneyland. Somebody else said they had recently moved from LA and it reminded her of a movie set, like the super bright lights that you have to have when they're filming. And the effect isn't limited to a light pole right outside someone's front door. 
it tends to be lights that are behind your house a street over, maybe two streets over. And because it's hilly, the light travels really far down the hill. The president of our neighborhood council, um, she said that they put a street light in front of her house and the hill is so steep that the light shines down through her garden and into her guest bedroom. And she said the first night that it was on, she kept thinking she had left the bathroom light on. So she kept getting out of bed to go turn the light off. And, you know, but she couldn't. It was the street light that was shining through the guest bedroom, across the hallway and into her bedroom. Hillary and her neighbors did what many people in this situation would do. They started asking questions. Well, we started contacting the city. We were told that we were asking some questions that were making people uncomfortable, like how was this paid for? And, you know, why did you decide to put the lights where you put them? And why do we have so many lights? And what, why do we have the color of lights that we have? We asked if they had done any environmental reviews. We asked, you know, why did they do this? Why, how did they come up with this plan? And the answers we got were not very satisfactory. The city of Richmond sent out a public survey in 2011. The sixth highest concern from 400 residents out of 110,000 people was improving streetlights. And so based on that, and based on a couple of comments that were made at city council meetings during the open forum period, some people said that a few streets were too dark and they wanted more streetlights. And so the city took that to mean, we're going to add new streetlights. <laughs> I think another part of the problem was that Richmond, like many, many other cities, don't have a lot of money. And so they want to get the most bang for their buck. And so I think they looked at their budget and they wanted to do a streetlight replacement project because LEDs use a lot less electricity. And I think they didn't really do much other research besides that. And so they said, okay, we're not going to hire a lighting engineer. We're not going to do a lighting study. Community outreach takes a long time, so we're just going to come up with a plan. We're going to look at a map, and we're going to stick these lights on poles. And everybody should be happy. I checked in with Adam Lenz, the environmental manager for the city of Richmond. He said that over the past several years, there have been requests in Richmond for, quote, improved lighting, which the city took to mean more lights. And the main reason for this is to make people feel safer. I think the community associates uh, streetlights with perceived safety. Better street lighting makes folks feel more comfortable being out in the street at night. That's a big issue for Richmond, but not necessarily for Point Richmond. Point Richmond is um, a fairly wealthy neighborhood relative to the rest of Richmond. And we have petty crime. Point Richmond is fairly low crime. Our biggest problem seems to be car break-ins. There's been a lot of research about the relationship between lighting and crime, and there's no conclusive evidence that additional lighting reduces crime. And there's some evidence that additional lighting increases petty crime, which is the type of crime we have the most in Point Richmond. An example of this is the car break-ins Hillary mentioned, where criminals are able to see clearly inside cars and determine if there's good stuff inside to steal. The new lights in Point Richmond potentially diminished safety in another way, too. My neighbor two doors down, she said she never used to close her blinds, partly because she liked to see what was going on on the street. And if there was a car driving slowly or if something was happening, she liked to look out the window. But she said the light shines right into her living room. 
she has a hutch with a glass door, and she said it reflects off the glass door and shines onto her TV. So she bought curtains. She thinks from a safety standpoint, she, you know, she used to be one of the people that was looking out on the street, and she said because of these lights, she's not going to be doing that anymore. She's going to get heavy curtains, and her windows will be closed. As the residents of Point Richmond looked further into why their neighborhood had gotten so much brighter, they discovered that the city had almost doubled the number of streetlights there. I asked Adam Lenz about this, and he said the increase was based on the needs of the city as a whole. They didn't really consider that the lighting needs could be different in different areas. In Point Richmond, the topography is different and the street width is different. So that's one thing that I think is unique in that community. So in that neighborhood, uh, what we did was we approached it like the other neighborhoods unknowingly. And we soon realized that there were other issues that we needed to, to focus on. In hindsight, I wish that we would have gone to the Point Richmond Neighborhood Council to, to actually gather some more input beforehand. Adam and the city have been responsive to concerns about the new lighting. They agreed to do a lighting demonstration study where they dimmed certain lights to lower levels of brightness. The neighborhood group conducted an online survey to see what residents preferred. What we found was the majority of the residents liked the lights at the lowest possible setting, and a number of residents wanted the lights totally removed. Adam told me that based on the study, the city is working on a new process where residents can request that lights be dimmed or removed. Last month, they removed 35 new streetlights from Point Richmond. But there are other complications that have arisen. By putting in all of these new lights, by doubling the number of lights on our streets, it's really, it's ended up pitting neighbor against neighbor. One of the problems with the way this project was rolled out was that the city didn't get any community input before they put the lights in, and now it's turned into this big controversial thing. But the lights are installed. Some people really like the lights, and some people believe that the lights make them safer, even when they're presented with evidence to the contrary. And our biggest problem now is how do we resolve these, these conflicts? It's a shame that the conversation in Point Richmond is sort of happening backwards, with lights having to be removed and fences mended. But these are great questions to ask. Most of us never really even notice how our world is being gradually lit up. And it was only by having it all happen at once that Hillary became aware of the issue of light pollution. You know, I had never really thought much about lighting and darkness. And I, you know, I go to work in the morning and I come home at night and I go inside. I guess I had never really thought about the sky before and about looking at stars. We've all experienced, or hopefully we've all experienced, going to a national park or going camping and seeing the Milky Way and seeing all the stars and the shooting stars and the moon and sometimes the planets, and it's amazing. And I guess I had never thought before that we should be able to see that from our houses, and we can't. I guess I had never really made the connection. You can't see the stars because of all these lights we have. I'm just like Hillary. I didn't make the connection between not seeing the stars and all the lights all over the place. I grew up in New York City, and though I have been to some dark places, I've never seen the Milky Way. I've been looking for it ever since I became aware of this issue. So why has our world gotten so bright so fast? Paul Bogard has a theory about it, and I have to say, it rings true for me. 
we are afraid of the dark. And sometimes I say that to people and they scoff, you know, oh, I'm not afraid of the dark. And I think if we went to those people's houses, their houses would be all lit up with, <laughs> with light. I think fear of the dark is a basic human emotion. We're not essentially built to be nocturnal, we're more diurnal creatures. And then we've, through our myths and our religions and those kinds of things, painted darkness and night as a time of danger. Lions and tigers and bears, you know, we've killed them all off. And so we've just, you move that into the modern age and I think we equate darkness and night with danger still, but now it's, you know, a fear of crime, of criminals, and especially of violent crime, people attacking us at night. Yeah, I think the thing we fear the most are other people. It's not as though this fear is completely unfounded. Most fears have some basis in reality. So I don't at all belittle the feeling of being afraid at night, and in fact, I talk in the book about being afraid of the dark myself. It's a natural feeling. What isn't natural and what doesn't make sense is that we then try to push all that darkness away simply by making everything brighter. Most of the places around us are not, you're not going to be attacked by somebody, you know, it's just, we've grown to feel like anywhere you go at night you're going to be attacked by somebody. It's just not true. While our fear of the dark has mostly shifted from wild animals to other people, as Hillary noted, there's no conclusive research linking more light to reduced crime. And that's the crazy thing about this issue of light and safety and darkness and danger. There's this notion that if we somehow turn our yard light off or turn off our street lights or even turn them down, that suddenly swarms of criminals are going to descend on our street, which is just absurd. You know, it's just, it doesn't work that way. Criminals aren't just going to appear out of the ground somehow if you turn off the light. And even in cases where there might be criminals, more lighting doesn't necessarily make us safer. When Paul gives talks, he often shows a couple of slides. Back-to-back -back slides where I show an unshielded, quote-unquote, security light that we're all used to seeing it, blaring away light into the sky, into your eyes, into your neighbor's bedrooms. And then the next slide is the exact same image, but the photographer is holding his hand up just to shield the light. So the light just goes downward and then you see the, you know, the bad guy standing in the shadows. People are shocked because we've been brought up to think that number one, night is dangerous, dark is dangerous, and that number two, light is good, light is safe. And therefore, more light is more safety. And in fact, you have more light, it makes it harder to see cast shadows and the bad guys can, can hide there, if there even are bad guys. We like light, we see light, and we're drawn towards it. That's why gas stations are brighter, because they know we're, we're drawn toward it. I think, though, that because some light can help us be safer at night by allowing us to see better, ever more light doesn't make us ever safer. At some point, too much light actually makes it more dangerous at night. Uh, drivers can't see pedestrians or bicyclists. So this idea that more light will make us safer, it just, it doesn't make sense if you start to think about it. But there's a lot of emotional and psychological and sort of deep inside uh, fear of the dark and affinity for the light. Paul thinks our feelings about light and dark go deeper than streetlights and starry skies. 
I think we're afraid of the dark uh, metaphorically as well. You know, I think we're, we're afraid of the unknown. We're afraid of when we can't see clearly in our own lives. So I think those things work together. We live in a time when we try to avoid darkness, whether it's the literal darkness of being outside at night or the metaphorical darkness of anxiety, depression, melancholy. And these are just qualities of what it means to be a human being. Darkness is part of life. We've evolved with darkness. And just like we're losing the, not experiencing the beauty of the literal darkness, we're losing the value of metaphoric darkness as well, of contemplation, reflection, all those things. One sad result of clouding over our view of the stars is that we lose one of the main gateways to a sense of wonder. We've taken what was once one of the most common human experiences, walking out the door and coming face to face with the universe, and we've made it one of the most rare human experiences. 200 years ago and for all of human history, when you walked outside, there was the universe in all its glory, and that inspired religion, spirituality, meditation, reflection, science, uh, art, just a sense of, oh my God, you know, just a sense of, wow, which is a really important thing to experience. And we've just kind of erased that. We've just made it so that you have to travel. Most people have to travel to, to see that. I mean, I, I wrote a book about it and I still had a hard time finding those experiences. You know, they're very, they're very rare. It's hard to find uh, an experience where you're, you know, watching the stars rise out of the horizon in the east and fall off the edge of the earth on the west. We just don't see that stuff anymore. And it used to be every night. So here's the great thing about light pollution. It's not hard to fix it. If we shield lights and point them only where we need them, have them turn off when they're not needed, and choose light colors that interfere less with wildlife, we can have all the benefits of light and bring back our dark skies. The reality is that we're gonna have light at night. Light at night is a, is a pretty amazing thing. But like so many things, it's how we use it. And the very definition of light pollution is the overuse and misuse of light. It's not light. It's using too much of it and using it in ways that are dangerous and unhealthy for us. So what I would like to see is that we use light thoughtfully and responsibly, that we only use light where we need it, when we need it, We'll shield our lights, we'll turn our lights down a little bit, we'll use new technology. You know, I'd like to see cities lit with innovation and creativity. And what can happen then is that, yeah, maybe New York City doesn't ever get back to natural darkness, but the surrounding communities might. We can completely control this. Night as we know it is going to change in the coming decades. It's gonna look different. It's either going to become brighter, we're going to keep doing what we're doing just with more light, or we could make real progress, and that could be pretty beautiful. There are places all around the world that are already waking up and turning out the lights, or at least turning them down. New York City is turning off non-essential outdoor lights during peak bird migration periods. Small towns in Europe and the U.S. are drafting outdoor lighting guidelines that emphasize quality of light over quantity. 
Places like Flagstaff in Tucson, Arizona, Copenhagen, Paris, Berlin, and Amsterdam are taking steps to bring back the dark. They're showing that it can be done and that we have a choice. We can have safety and convenience and reconnect to the ancient mystery and awe of the night sky. And like so many things, the first step is knowing what to ask for. I'd like to see the stars from my backyard. How about you? And if you're lucky enough to live in a place where the sky is still dark, go out tonight and look up and appreciate what you have. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. You can find more information about the issue of light pollution at nocturnepodcast.org under this episode, The Vanishing Dark. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Nocturne Podcast. You can find Nocturne on iTunes, and if you've already rated us and written a review, thank you. It's so appreciated. If you haven't, please consider it. Nocturne is now part of an awesome podcast collective called The Herd. That's H-E-A-R-D. We're a group of storytelling shows that have banded together to share creative resources and support each other. Please visit theherdradio.com to find out more. Rob McGinley Myers is a member of The Herd, and he produces Anxious Machine, a show about how humans are affected by the things humans make. His latest episode is about the history of intoxication, and how it played out in the life of one young woman. In the 1930s, a scientist named Albert Hoffman was experimenting with chemicals derived from a fungus found in tainted rye grain. He tested one of the chemicals on his experimental animals and said they became unusually animated. This was the drug Maggie took right before math class. Everything was fine during math class, and then uh, by lunchtime... I was starting to trip. Check out Anxious Machine on iTunes and at theherdradio.com. Thanks for listening.